0: I don't know
1: if uh, I don't know how it sounded out here, but I am half deaf from those headphones, and I loved every second of it. Uh, honestly, we we as a, as, a, as a group of friends also, man, we're just praying um, that you experience joy in worship more and more. Uh, that's the direction we're going, team. Uh, more joy and delighting in God. Our mission statement is to be a people declaring and delighting in the beauties of Jesus. Uh, Sunday mornings is just part of the the puzzle. So Luke 24, Uh, we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week, if you're new with us. Uh, We're in a conversation about doubts. Uh, in which we are walking with the disciples in the time in between when Jesus was killed and when he rose again three days later. So this is like week four, a Lots has been said. On the one hand, we've been exploring doubt and faith um, from a psychological perspective as a way in which we construct reality. We construct reality. Reality for you is full of uh, faith and doubt, belief and disbelief. And the way that you construct that is through your observable facts, Right, through the facts of what you see. And then those, see, we think that's all we construct reality from because you're a nice, good materialist. You're a son of the Enlightenment. And you've been taught that the only real thing in the universe is what you can see. And so we construct reality out of what we can see, but we have neglected the spiritual reality of all of life when we, when we think this way. See, wh- how you live is an amalgamation of what you see. Yes, but it's colliding with your values and your emotions and your desires. And all those things are constructing reality for you. Or to sound like, not to sound like a college professor, there's what you see, and then there's what you think about what you see. There's the facts, and then there's the wide variety of how you interpret those facts. And how do we interpret those facts? Well, one time I walked in a room and fell on my face. Now, if I think I'm gonna walk in that room, I'm gonna fall on my face again. What's that? Well, that's your experience informing your current reality, your history, right? If you've had bad experiences with men, you tend to not trust men. Why? He's a perfectly trustworthy guy, seems nice enough, but you think that dude's up to no good. Why is that? Well, it's because it's not just the seen realities of the world. You're a a complicated being. You have history and experiences and desires and bias and emotions and all those things are interpreting reality for you. You're constructing it out of these things. Now, what's so interesting is what we see in the Bible um, is you can have something happen. You can have the facts. It's it's, it's just what happens, okay? Here's the thing, it happens. (laughs) One guy says, That just happened. And another guy says, no, 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 no. That was some completely, this is true in the Bible. This is true in reality, right? We interpret things. So one of the things we pointed out was in John 12, when um, God speaks audibly from heavens, God speaks in John 12, voice out of heaven. And some people say, that was thunder. And other people say, no, that was was, was the voice of God. Dude, the same thing just happened. Two drastically different interpretations, right? How does that happen? Well, I'll tell you this, it's funny right now, uh, interpreting the same facts differently happens every day, especially if you're married, right? Right? You're going to wash the dishes? Why'd you say it like that? What? I, I just asked you if you're gonna, there was a tone. No, there was not a tone. I'm just asking if you're going to wash the dishes, right? There's no tone. No, there was a tone. Okay. Same thing, different interpretations, all right? Um, And what I really try to point out is how you interpret the facts around you will be dictated by your pre-established values, desires, biases, emotional state, all those things. And in many instances, it's those values, desires, emotions that make us either people full of doubt or people full of belief. And at times, your experiences as a person, your history, all the way back, can cause you to ignore facts right in front of your face. Don't even see it. Now, I mean, just personal time. I'm very good at this. Ask my wife. I'm very good at ignoring facts when I want to do something. All right? So, for example, uh, I, I call it blinded by desire. Um, if I want something, like, bad enough, like, this is going to get done. I will ignore all reasonable facts until it is done right one time i wanted to replace the attic stairwell we were doing like this house renovation thing and the next day that was when allison was doing a, she had this candle company and she was at the yellow daisy festival the next day yellow daisy festival and we had all this work we had to get all the candles together and pack the car and all this stuff we had a we had a one-year-old or two-year-old at the time Addie was a baby and so but dude i was gonna i was gonna replace the stair attic the attic thing you know the thing They pull down, yeah, okay. So I'm like, dude, I'm doing this tonight, right? I'm pretty impulsive. So I I bought it that day. Um, And and so I was absolutely, and she's like, hey, I need you to give Addie a bath. And I was like, sure, I can do that while I install the attic stairwell. (laughs) So... Kids in the bath, I get the bath going, and the, I mean, the hall's right there, guys, relax. Come on, the hall's right there. The bathroom, is fine, right, right? Everything's fine. And so I'm pulling it down, and as I'm pulling it down, I'm by myself, obviously, and as I'm pulling it down, it starts to come apart. Uh, the part that was still stuck up on the top of the ceiling was um, just like a one by six with the spring attached to it. So, so I have it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, oh, no. Like, this is not good. I'm in a pickle. I can't ask for help because she's going to be like, what are you doing? Right? So, so like there's that moment in life when you should realize that this is a bad idea and you should just stop, but it was too late for that. Right? So, so I'm looking up and I'm like, okay, I think like it's barely hanging on that, you know, thing. Right? So I think I'm just going to, I'm just going to pull it really slowly. So I'm looking, I'm not an idiot. Right? So I'm doing it slowly. Right? And, and so I see I see the spring and I'm pulling it and then wham, thing comes at 60 mile an hour, whack right in the face, right? And like, in, in my imagination, my feet went up in the air and I went down, uh, smashes me right in, oh, you, there it is. Yeah, okay. yeah, listen, seven stitches later, everything was fine, okay? Addie got a bath by her mom, right? <laughs> we, we went to the Yellow Daisy Festival. She made tons of money, I'm sure. Okay, dumb story. Uh, But a clear example of when all the facts are saying you should probably stop, dude, you can plow through that, right? All the facts. There's more at play in your person than just facts, y'all. You're a complicated being, right? There's more forces at play than just what we see in the world, Christian, right? The facts are you probably shouldn't drink eight shots of espresso espresso a day. That doesn't stop me, right? (laughs) Right? Like, we can easily ignore facts, even when, and and when you want something bad enough, if you're ambitious enough or if you're stupid enough in my case, like, you just ignore it. Plow right through it. So on the one hand, we've been exploring the psychological reality of faith and belief and how we construct those things. We've been looking at the forces at play that cause you to believe things versus causing you to stop. Like, what in me created the faith that said, I have the time and expertise to change this out? And like, what, what created that faith in me? That was unwarranted faith. Right, And so all these things are at play in our hearts and lives. Now, on the other hand, we've been walking with the disciples, showing how they struggled through the resurrection, how they struggled to believe that Jesus was actually alive from the dead. And all of us, if you're a Christian, are going to walk through what we're calling the time in between, which is when all of the observable facts are pointing in the opposite direction than your values and beliefs. You will have that time. Um, If you haven't, I love you, you will. We all get it. We all get the time in between when all of the observable facts seem to be pointing in the opposite direction. So today we pick up with the disciples after the road to Emmaus, all right, where Jesus shows himself to the whole crew. It's what Mike read. And the different gospels point out different facets of this experience. Luke, what we read, points out that they thought Jesus was a ghost. Jesus walks in the room and he's like, brother's peace. And they're like, ah! And they start running around thinking he's a ghost, right? And he says, why do you doubt? Touch me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Y'all chill, y'all chill out, right? And I love how Luke puts it. He says, while they still disbelieved for joy. Did you catch that? What an interesting phrase. Disbelieved for joy. And were marveling. When that's going on in their lives, he says, hey, you guys got any fish? And they watch him eat it, because that's, that's what I, it says that he ate it before them. And I imagine they're just like watching him dumbstruck as he's devouring this. And, but this phrase, disbelieved for joy. Uh, see, we, we think joy and faith go together, don't we? Those are like the two things. So if you're happy, you believe things. You guys get that? But here, it's like they were so happy, so overcome with excitement, it was actually their level of joy that caused them to doubt. That's a fascinating thing. But if you think about it, it's actually not that weird. We have an idiom for this. It goes like this, it was too good to be, yes, yes. Did you know the goodness of a thing can actually be the thing that causes you to doubt it? Which makes a lot of sense in a fallen world, all right? I, like some of, us, some of us live, as my friend says, waiting for the other shoe to drop nonstop. Right? So, so often we go around and if anything good happens, we brace ourselves. you know? This is just an observation. I think many of us live in doubt and despair because as beautiful as joy is, as much as we want to live in it, as much as we long for it in the depths of our hearts, we say joy is too fragile a thing. I've tried joy before. I tried joy once, then he left me with the kids. I tried joy once, then I lost my job, right? And we aren't in this, I think so many of us today, because we live in a fallen world, we aren't trigger shy, we're joy shy. We're shy to give ourselves to joy because we think it's too good to be true. It just won't last, right? I think many of us, y'all, we, at the prospect of true joy filling your life, you shrink away. God couldn't be that good, that present, that involved, that loving in my life. And here with the disciples, death itself, y'all, the single most effective killer of joy in the cosmos is defeated by Jesus and their hearts can barely catch up. They disbelieve. Because it's so good. And, and he's like, You're going to eat that fish? And I imagine that as Jesus is like destroying some mahi mahi in between the bites, he begins to explain the entire Old Testament to these guys. He goes on, he says, You know, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all that stuff, yeah, all that stuff's about me. <laughs> all of it. I'm fulfilling that. All that's happened, all that's about to happen, it's about to go down, you know, just like it's written. That's what he says, just like it's written. Almost as if Jesus is saying, come on, guys, it's all in the book. Did you not read the homework? It all says that this is going to happen, that I'm going to die. Messiah my is going to die. He's going to come back to life. And then forgiveness and repentance of sins is going to be preached to all the nations. It's in the book, guys. And they're all like, what? No, I don't think so, Jesus. I don't. What book are you reading? He's like, you know, Moses and the prophets and all the Psalms. It's all there. It's written. Now, that phrase, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, is like shorthand for the Old Testament, the Old Testament is just three part um, compilations called the Tanakh or the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And it's uh, the Pentateuch, uh, the prophets, and then the writings. And the writings are the Psalms and the, and the wisdom literature. And these things this is a three part collection that makes up the Old Testament. This is a side note. This phrase that Jesus uses is actually one of the reasons Christians today acknowledge that collection as our Scripture, because Jesus did. It's funny, it's interesting as a side note. Here, Jesus is acknowledging the three-part collection, Pentateuch, Prophets, and Writing, as scripture. And so we take our cues from him. And it's why some other um, Old Testament things like Baruch and Judith um, are not. And our Christians don't acknowledge as Old Testament, right? So you'll see shorthand like this in the entire New Testament. Sometimes they'll just say Moses. Sometimes they'll say Moses and the prophet. But all of it, every time you see in the New Testament, they're always referring to the Old Testament as a whole, the whole book, right? Now, you see this exact phrase, Moses and the prophets, in another story in Luke 16. It's a very fascinating uh, story. And it surprisingly overlaps what we are talking about with doubt and faith. You want to read it? Yes. Cool two people. I love it. I love it. All right. Let's read it together. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury at his gate. At his gate, sorry, lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. Um, just stop real quick. Uh, this is the only uh, parable, I think, that in which anyone is given a name. In all of Jesus' other parables, no one is given a name. In this one, there's a man named Lazarus. It's fascinating. Makes you wonder, is this a parable? Is this something that Jesus observed as he could observe it? So as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. So the poor man goes up, rich man goes down. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. like that line. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted. Sounds like an American. And Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over uh, to us from there. Then the rich man said, "'Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers.'" And I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. So that's nice. This is like this retroactive evangelistic impulse in this guy. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man says, No, 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 no. Father Abraham, Father, no, no, no. But if someone ascends from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. Abraham says, Son, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen, even if someone rises from the dead. Selah. So here, Jesus is pointing at the very thing we've been saying. There's a state in which no amount of physical evidence will convince a person. It's a spiritual reality. He's saying someone could come back from the dead in front of your face and you would find a way to rationalize it and stay in your sins. The sky could open and God himself could speak And you would say, that's just thunder. Someone could pray, Lord, stop the rain. And you see the clouds split, and it rains on your right and on your left. And you're going to say, well, that's some crazy Georgia weather. Am I right? Right? I think of, when I was sitting with this this week, you know those movie sequences where like someone's trying to get someone's attention behind like other characters back and they're doing everything they can do and the character is just missing it? I just got the strong sense that that's God and you in many, in, for someone in here. God's doing everything he can do to get your attention and you're just missing every sign. You know, Jesus understood that the father was always working. Jesus seemed to have the idea that all the time, God's doing something. And me too. Dallas Willard calls it a God-saturated world. And I think some of us don't have eyes to see it. I think you have to realize right here that Jesus is pointing to something deeper inside you that causes you to rationalize and ignore and dismiss Even when God may be going out of his way, like breaking the natural wall to get your attention, even if someone rises from the dead, he says, they won't believe. Fascinating, isn't it? And the second thing I see in this passage is apparently the thing you need, the thing powerful enough to cause you, to jar you out of your sins and cause you to repent and step into life is in your hands. Jesus seems to think that the scriptures themselves are powerful enough to redeem and save, to jar you, to wake you up out of death, to cause new life to burst forth in you. Jesus seems to think that little book that all of us have sitting around somewhere in in our house is enough. And he says, if you don't have ears to hear that... Even if someone rises from the dead, you won't believe. Fascinating. The Bible, isn't it? So revealing, so piercing, if we'll sit with it. See, many people are waiting around for a sign from God, aren't they? Come on, right? Like all the time, if I just saw a miracle, if God just broke through in a crazy supernatural way, then I'd believe, then I'll repent, then I'll change how I live. Jesus doesn't seem to think so. I don't know, maybe if you like took a group of people and, and maybe if you like busted open a massive ocean and put walls on both sides and let them walk through on dry land, then they would learn how to repent and believe. <laughs> well, that's not how it worked in the Exodus. If you think seeing the supernatural will just automatically fix everything in your life, it will not, friends. And I wonder if you don't suffer from what, what I just call spiritual laziness sitting around for God to do something that he's told you to do. Sometimes scripture is so blatantly, obviously clear and simple, we have to get out from underneath it because it's too simple. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Well, I'm not gonna do that. I know too many people, right? So (laughs) let's figure out a way to where no one really has to do that. And let's just cloud it with spiritual Christian ease. James says, pure and undefiled religion. Dude, look out for orphans and widows. Well, obviously, obviously he doesn't mean like look out for orphans and widows, right? So let's, let's wait and see if God opens up the clouds and says, "Oh, hey, look out for orphans and widows. And then we'll be like, no, I think I was thunder. Yeah. Disbelief is a spiritual state. It's a spiritual Blindness. In which God could break through the physical, He could rip open the skies in front of you, and you would remain unchanged. And if you think about it, like you're like, man, that's just too radical, Chris. Like, I don't know, man, I don't did the Bible really mean that we should do all this stuff? I mean, that's radical. That would change everything. That would change my whole life. Well, at least you're being honest. Yes, it would. It would change your entire life. Guys, listen, I dare you. <laughs> this week. Just read the book of James. Open up to any chapter in the New Testament, and then ask yourself, what if I actually did this? Your life would change. It would be radically transformed, guys, like radically transformed. And we're like, you know, well, I I don't know. And it's on the other hand, don't you want your life to be transformed? Like, aren't you looking at all sorts of places to preoccupy yourself, to escape reality? You need transformation, don't you? But we're just like, but I'm sure it's not going to happen that way. Dude, what if it's that simple? What if it's as simple as opening the book and saying, you know, the vineyard has this value. It's called doing the stuff. Doing the stuff. It means we open it and we say, it seems to be that this is meant for us. (laughs) It seems to be that this was a directive, an imperative for the people of God as a way of life. And they said, let's just try to do the stuff we see in the Bible. And I'm telling you, dude, Radical. So this is what we do all the time. We say, God, if you want me to volunteer at church or be generous with my money, you know, or if you really want me to give my time and energy, you know, cause that food truck to burst into flames. (laughs) Nope. Dodge that bullet. I wanted to buy that TV anyway. I was just listening to Francis Chan say, we choose inactivity and disobedience to be the default we think we think i don't really have to obey the teachings of jesus i mean unless something crazy happens and god is saying to you right now no actually something crazy could happen you are in a state of disbelief and if you don't have the ears to hear scripture you will not believe if the supernatural slaps you in the face startling. It's startling. Beware of spiritual laziness, friends. Beware of spiritual laziness disguised in supernatural language. Now, Jesus uses this word, listen, doesn't he? He said, yeah, Jesus is calling someone, right? Right. (laughs) He uses this word, listen. (laughs) Listen, listen to Moses and the prophets. That's what he says. He says, even if they don't even if someone rises from the dead they won't listen right um if the bible if christianity feels irrelevant to you which i know we're in church and no one wants to fess up to you but if it feels irrelevant to you you might try actually obeying the things that it tells you to do in scripture now i know this feels fanatical and revolutionary right and i'm not going to be a fanatic right but listen y'all we got widows in this church We got, there's a, there's a nursing home down the street. And now, now just recognize what happened in your heart when I just said that. That, that feels radical, right? That's a little too much. You're, oh, we're legalistic here, right? Well, or maybe we're just talking about simply obeying the things we see in scripture. And God is saying, if you don't have a heart to do that, then you won't have a heart even if supernatural happens right in front of your face, right? All right. So now here's the thing. Sometimes Jesus would say this thing that has always befuddled me. He would do a miraculous sign. All right, he would do a miraculous sign and then people would say, do a miraculous sign. (laughs) And then then he would say this thing. He would say, a wicked generation asks for a sign. You heard this one? Uh, There are some instances where Jesus straight up says, your unwillingness to believe and need for physical proof is wicked. How can he say that? He's like moralizing faith and trust. How can he do that? Remember Thomas? He says, Blessed are you if you believe and, and haven't seen? How can he do this? It seems like he's almost arguing for a nonsensical, non-reasonable faith, blind faith. Doesn't it? Doesn't it seem that way? How can you say you were wicked? We just want proof. We just want to know that you're gonna back up your, your deal right? But I think we only think that because we're thinking in terms of religion, and he is thinking in terms of relationship. Let's think about this, then we'll get out of here. Is a friend a good friend who never believes your intentions until you prove it? Is that a good friend? If every time I said to my wife, I'm sorry, if every time my wife said to me, I love you, I said, prove it. What kind of horrible husband, A horrible horrible friend, horrible human, right? But so, guys, we moralize trust all the time. We put value on trust relationally. We're angry with our friends when they don't trust us. Isn't that a reality? We're angry because they were suspicious of our character, their lack of trust through shade on your character. Dude, in relationships, we require trust all the time without proof. All the time you do this in your relationships. You assign value and merit to your friends if they trust you. If someone doesn't trust you, you say, "Hey, you're a lousy friend. Lewis, in his collection, on, um, on le- collection of essays called The World's Last Night, gives this example. He says, let's say you've been accused of a crime and you're on trial. Surely there's a difference between those friends who believe you're innocent from the onset and those friends who are like, eh, maybe. And then once you're proved innocent, they're like, ah, oh, I knew you're innocent all the time. Dude, they weren't your friends. Are we tracking loyalty? We're talking about that, right? That person's not your friend. If he didn't believe in your good intentions from the onset until it was proved, right? Uh, You're going to dismiss him as a friend. Uh, Y'all, trust, let me, this is what we're getting at as an idea. Trust involves inherent risk. Can I say that again? Trust involves inherent risk. Lewis says, To love involves trusting the beloved beyond the evidence and sometimes against the evidence. Surely, in your marriage, you've been accused maybe or you've had a situation in which you looked very guilty. (laughs) Well, your spouse has an option to trust, maybe an unwarranted trust. But either way, what I'm trying to point out to you is that involves risk. There's always risk. See, we think... Being a Christian is about logic and history, and that's certainly there. That's present. But Lewis says this. To believe in the God of the Bible is to believe that you as a person now stand in the presence of God as a person. Jesus, the person. What would have been a mere variation in opinion concerning Christianity now becomes variation in your personal attitude towards a person. You are no longer faced with an argument which demands your assent but a person who demands your confidence. See, there's a relational aspect here. When we talk about faith, we're talking about loyalty to a person, Jesus. Think of the epic journeys. Think of the epic stories that we listen, that we watch and listen to cinematically, where loyalty between friends is the thing that makes or breaks the trip. Like Lord of the Rings, right? It's all about loyalty and friendship, and how those who were loyal were praised for their loyalty and for their trust, even when the evidence was pointing in the opposite r- direction. Lewis is pointing out in this essay, he's, he's talking about cr- Christians who seem to praise trusting God, even when all the evidence points in the opposite direction. And he's showing how amongst friends, we do this all, all the time, he calls it an obstinacy of faith. And he says, it's required in any friendship, what is faith, y'all? What is faith? If Jesus is saying, blessed are those who believe without seeing, faith is not really about evidence. What's faith? Well, there's a very important distinction we have to make if we're going to be Christians between faith and belief on this side and knowledge on this side. When you believe something, you believe it because you don't know it. Are we tracking? Do you understand what I'm saying? If I were to say, where's Tom? Where's Tom? And you said, I believe he's gone to the store. Why'd you say that? Well, you said that because you don't know. Maybe he went to the library. Maybe he's on the toilet. You say, I believe he went to the thing. Now, if you knew it, you'd say, well, Tom's at the store. You wouldn't say believe. but You wouldn't need to believe anything because you know it. You understand? To trust in God, y'all. John Wimber said you spell faith, R-I-S-K. There is inherent risk in any relationship and with our trust in God. The letter of Hebrews defines faith as this substance of things, what? Hoped for. Do you hope for something you have? No, you hope for it, right? As much as I want to remove any risk, as much as I want to convince you of God's good intentions for you, that they're real, right? You can reach out and grab them, which I believe you can. It is a belief. Hello? You are choosing And there will be evidence in some situations where all of it's pointing to the reality and goodness of God. You're going to rejoice in those situations. And there will be situations where all of the evidence is pointing that God doesn't exist and He hates you. What are you going to do? Will you choose to trust in that moment against the evidence? Right? Are we tracking? Right? No amount of hard evidence can resolve whether or not you will choose to trust God for yourself. Because at the end of the day, it's something called faith. The question will be, do I want to trust God? Do I want to believe that he is who he says he is? And if you do, then you can have a faith relationship with him. that's based on trust. Or do you prefer to trust yourself, trust in yourself, right? I just need you to know, this might seem so simple that it doesn't need to be said, but faith is a choice. Faith is a choice. It's not going to accidentally happen in your life. After we got married, my wife had a season of doubt and questions. A lot of her friends bailing on Christianity. They are dropping like flies. We had a lot of stuff going on in our life. And I remember she just came to this point and said, at the end of the day, it's faith. At the end of the day, I'm going to stop asking for evidence. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to choose. I'm choosing to believe in the goodness of God right now in this moment. I don't know for certain. I'm going to (sighs) believe. Am I making any sense? Okay, good. Thank you for that. All right. There is a kind of obstinacy, a tenacity, a resoluteness for trusting anyone for the long haul. And God, too. There will be times, guys, like I said, all the evidence is going to point them out. There's times in your marriage where it seems like that. It's a choice, there's going to be a moment of test in your marriage. There's gonna be a moment of test in your relationship with God. There's gonna be a moment of test in all of your friendships. Are you gonna continue on with loyalty and trust? And some of you are in that right now with God. All of the evidence is pointing in the opposite direction. Things don't look how you thought it was gonna look. And you're asking yourself right now, I just wanna bring to your attention, dude, it is a choice. You can choose right now to trust and believe in God whether or not the evidence seems to point in that direction. I'm going to end with reading a little bit of this to you guys and then we'll get out of here. You guys okay with that? You can hang with me. Okay. Christians seem to praise belief which holds out against evidence. Okay. I must now try to show why this is logical. Uh, There are times when we can do all that a fellow creature needs if only he will trust us. In getting a dog out of a trap. In extracting a thorn from a child's finger. In teaching a boy to swim. Or rescuing one who can't. In getting a frightened beginner over a nasty place on a mountain. The one fatal obstacle may be their distrust. See, we are asking them to trust us in the teeth of their senses, their imaginations, and their intelligence. We ask them to believe what looks painful will actually relieve the pain. Hmm. What looks dangerous is actually their only safety. We ask them to accept apparent impossibilities. That moving the paw further into the trap is actually the way to get it out. That hurting the finger very much more will stop the finger hurting. That water, which is obviously permeable and will rest, will resist and support the body, That holding on to the only support within reach is not the way to avoid sinking. That going to a higher, more exposed ledge is the way not to fall. To support all these incredibilia, we can rely only on the other party's confidence in us. A confidence certainly not based on demonstration. Admittedly, shot through with emotions, and perhaps, if we are strangers, resting on nothing but such assurance as the look of our face and the tone of our voice can supply, or maybe for the dog, our smell. Sometimes, stay with me, sometimes, because of their unbelief, we can do no mighty works. But if we succeed, we do so because they have maintained their faith in us against apparently contrary evidence. No one blames us for demanding such faith. No one blames them for giving it. No one says afterward, what an unintelligent dog or child or boy that must have been to trust us. If the young mountaineer were a scientist, it would not be held against him that when he came up for a fellowship, that he had once departed from Clifford's rule of evidence by entertaining a belief with strength greater than the evidence logically obliged him to. As I was preparing this week, I could not shake the feeling that many of us are right there with God. You are in a place in life where God is asking you to trust him in a way that you have not trusted up, up until this point, And it feels to you terrifying. It feels full of risk. It's shot through with emotions. And God is asking you right now, will you trust me even when it hurts? Will you trust me when the pain seems to be coming from my own hand? Will you endure and trust that I have good intentions for you even when I'm asking you to do things that you think will hurt you, that you think are exposing you to, to risk? You think those this will never work. I'm never gonna be, I won't have enough money if I give this money away. I I won't, what, what what if I get too known? What if people actually figure out how messed up I am? I can't be vulnerable right now. Do you understand the dynamic I'm getting at? God is asking some of you to take risks, to be vulnerable in things, to trust him in areas that it doesn't seem like it's gonna work out, where the evidence may be pointing in the opposite direction. For some of you in this room, maybe it's just the fact that Jesus loves you. Maybe that belief alone feels so risky and vulnerable to you say, there's no way. And dude, today, right now, you can choose to believe the intentions of God are true even when the evidence seems to point the opposite, even when your life is falling apart, even when you're looking around and everything is saying, God doesn't love you. He's, let, He's abandoned you. Dude, faith is a choice. Yeah. It's a choice. In that moment, I think so many of us are right here. We're on the precipice of trusting God for something beautiful to happen in our life, and we're too scared to do it. We think, if I believe him right now, what will happen? I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fall apart. What if he leaves? What if they leave? What if the church crumbles? Dude, are you feeling me? There's, there's something that we, we have such a risk-averse nature in our nation. We're not willing anymore to take risks, even as long people. Maybe, you guys... I think some of us are there, man. I'm sorry, I got off my notes. Let me get back to it. Dude, maybe for you, it's jumping into relationships. Maybe it's getting, maybe you got burned at your last church and you're like, I'm never going to do it. Maybe it's living generously with your money. But you know, every single one of us has a next step with God. And you may be sitting on obedience from 10 years ago. Thinking, I, I, I believed 10 years ago and I trust and I took risk. And dude, maybe for some of you, it's just like, dude, get the book out and read it, man. Like maybe that's the risk right now. Pretty low stakes. You're just not doing that. You don't spend time with God. Maybe it's as simple as like taking that little step of faith, right? Maybe it's getting, maybe it's praying for your kids. Maybe it's parenting in a way that glorifies God. All of us have a next step. And I think some of us are paralyzed because we are too afraid if we take that step, it will expose us to risk. And I'm going to tell you something, it will. It will. And I'm not gonna tell you it's all gonna work out. How did it go for Jesus? How did Jesus trusting his father work out for him? Guys, we live in a fallen world and we cannot overestimate, or is it underestimate? I don't know, the the sin of the world that we live in. And when we begin to walk in faith and trust what that will do in us and through us and around us. You guys tracking with what I'm trying to say? We all have areas that God's tr- inviting us to trust Him. And as much as I want to say that I can prove that He's trustworthy, I, I mean, I, my life seems, I feel like it does. I feel like there's plenty of evidence, but even that evidence, is not enough. Right? You, you guys know what we're talking about? Let me pray for us. Then we'll come to the table. I just got so far off my notes, it doesn't even merit going back. So, so <laughs> let, me, let me pray for us. Jesus, right now, I just want to ask for my friends that feel like they're on the precipice. I want to ask right now for my friends that are feeling like their life is, is teetering on an edge and they're looking down and it's utterly terrifying. Obedience to you right now feels risky. It feels vulnerable. And God, for so many of us right now, we're, we're just, we're, we're paralyzed in fear that if we obey in this area, the collateral may be, irreparable. God, would you come Holy Spirit right now? Would you assure us of your good intentions for us, Lord? God, I pray right now that we would remember that your goal, your mission, where we where this place is, where this whole story is ending is with the renewal of all things. The renewal of all things, man. Any cost we may Uh, endure in this life, you say, you'll get a hundred times over. Lord, where this story is going is the end of injustice, the end of tears, the end of pain. God, what you promise is is that one day you will make right all that's wrong in the earth. And God, would you begin to do that right now in our own hearts? God, would you begin to convince us um, that you have good intentions for us? And I pray, God, that you would call people into and faith today. I think just the prayer for us today, guys, in this moment is, I believe, help my unbelief. And if you're there, I just want you to open up your hands before God. I believe, help my unbelief. Man, we all have steps to take. God, would you right now reveal to us what is the next step in our hearts and lives with our journey with you? What is it, God? God, would you open our eyes, bring to our hearts right now Our imaginations, the areas of obedience that you are calling us into. And God, may we not shrink back. Thank you, Lord. Love you, God. Let me pray these things. Amen.